0: with me, Father in Heaven, the way that we find out the greatness of Your loving heart is to see You in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. The way that we see Him is by opening up the Scripture, and by the way that we open the Scripture is to read it and to meditate upon it and to think deeply upon it. So I pray that even now, that You would enable us to see Christ, that we might know Your loving heart, and by knowing it, that we too would be transformed into those who love as Christ is loved. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Please turn to 1 Peter in chapter 1. 1 Peter in chapter 1, I want to begin reading with verse 22. And I'll read through chapter 2, verse 3. 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 22. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and all hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk. That you may grow up to salvation if you have indeed tasted that the Lord is good. Now, this passage is what I would call a 2 weaker or a two-parter. That is, I won't finish today. There's really two aspects to this that we need to touch. We'll get, a, we'll get through about one and a quarter today. Um, that doesn't mean next week's sermon will be any shorter, but there's just the way it divides up. That's sort of how we'll get there. The first part of this is the command. That's where it says in the middle of verse 22, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. The second part of this is the hope that we have that this command will not fall on deaf ears. The hope that we have that this command will not... Fall simply on those who are utterly inept, but rather come to those and bring with it. I'm not going to tell you what it brings with you. That's next. What it brings with it. That's next week. So the command is that we love one another. Now you remember we've been asking the question even as we began, at least verse 13 of chapter one, asking the question: How are we to respond to this salvation? And you remember that in the first 12 verses, Peter outlined this salvation. So, a quick review, test time, alright? Think. If somebody came to you and said, Explain to me how it is that your salvation is from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That you were saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. How would you answer that is? To what would you ascribe in the context of your salvation to the Father? To what would you ascribe... Of your salvation to the Son? Of what would you ascribe of your salvation to the Holy Spirit? See? Now, we often say we're saved by Jesus and through Him. And that's true. But really, it's more complete to say that we're saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Alright? So, you've already taken the test. Let me give you the answer. The Father elects, plans, chooses those who will be saved. The Son comes and achieves that salvation by His life, death, and resurrection. By His life, by living a perfect life for those the Father has chosen, for us, because we have it, so Jesus is our representative. And then, He takes upon the cross our sin as our substitute. He takes our sin upon Himself, He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. So our sins are taken by Him, atoned for, that is the penalty paid. That's the work of Christ. And then, the work of the Holy Spirit is to come and to take that which Christ has done for those whom the Father has chosen and apply it to them, give it to them. Give them new life, that's what Scripture calls being born again, so that we can respond then in repentance and faith. That's the work of the Holy Spirit, to transform us so that We can respond to all that Christ has done so that we can receive it, so we can believe it, so we can enjoy it, so we can experience it, so that it can be ours. That's the work of the Spirit. So we're saved by God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so uh, Peter begins in his first opening verses by mentioning the work of the Father, calling us elect, the work of the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we know that this salvation is complete. It's complete. It completely saves us from Sin it completely saves us from the wrath of God, both past, present, and future. It has a past aspect in the life of the believer. Think about that. This is again a test for those of you who have been here for the last month or however long we've been in First Peter so far. My family wagers how long it's going to take me to get finished with First Peter. I don't know what the bets are, and I don't know. Wish I did. I sort of hedge a little, but. Um, uh, But if you've been around, think about that. The past aspect of your salvation is the finished work of Christ, wherein He's taken the penalty for your sin. Thus, for believers, you're forgiven. Right? You're forgiven your sins, dealt with. The penalty of sin has been dealt with, and thus, in your own life, if you're a believer, you've experienced that forgiveness. Thus, you belong to God. However, there's a present aspect to what is happening in the course of our lives concerning sin. And that is, while the penalty of sin has been atoned for, dealt with by the work of Christ. And the power of sin has been dealt with in the work of Christ. In our present experience, day by day, as we obey, the power of sin in the context of our own life, in the context of our own experience, is being dealt with, diminished. That's our present life. This present life, what's taking place is we're doing battle by the Holy Spirit and Word of God to overcome sin in the context of our lives. It's power. The Bible calls that uh, holiness or sanctification, which is the process of being holified or the process of being made holy. That's the present tense of your salvation. That's where we live. That's where the people in Peter's day lived. But we live with the understanding of our sins having been forgiven and we live with the understanding of what is to come, the future aspect of this complete salvation, which is that a day is going to come when the presence of sin will be utterly eradicated from our experience. It won't be around us. Everything in glory in the life of a believer will reflect... The perfection of Jesus. Everything we see, everything that we are. The scripture says when we see him, we shall be like him. We will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. All right? And so this salvation is complete. It's from God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's complete past, present, and the future. It completely deals with every aspect of sin uh, that, 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 that exists. It is true, All right. So that's this sense. And so now the question is, how do we respond to this? And Peter now is walking us through various commands. Given that all this is true about us, he says, now, here's how to respond. First, we're to place our hope fully on the grace that's to be revealed to us, or to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That grace that is to come, which transforms us completely. That's our hope. That's what we desire. We desire to be like Jesus, and we long for that day. He says, okay, given that this is true, long for that day. Set your uh, your sights there, and then be holy. If that's your desire, to be like Jesus, now begin to walk that out now. Be holy, God says, as He is holy. That's what the Scripture says. And then He says, remember to live your life as aliens here, as exiles here. You don't belong here, you belong in glory. Your citizenship is there, but you're here Now, live here in fear, the very fear of God, in a reverent awe towards Him. Because remember, He's the one you call Father, but yet He's also the judge who judges impartially. So be familiar, but reverent before Him. And He's the one who saved you with the precious blood of Christ. All of that, now He says, love each other. Of course, this command is consistent with all the other. because if our hope is to be like Jesus and if our hope is to be holy and to live in the fear of God, then we should obey Him and His command to us is that we love one another. In fact, as we work through the Scripture, we see the the great significance of love. Not a sentimental love, but a real, earnest, sincere, pure-hearted love. A real sacrificial, a real giving of oneself for another. A real sense of being interested in, in the well-being of others. If you look, for instance, at the Ten Commandments, we find the first four uh, being love towards God. We see five through ten as those commandments which deal with uh, the love that we're to have for other people. When Jesus was asked uh, what the greatest commandment was, you remember he summarized the law really into two, the greatest being to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which would cover commandments one through four. And then he said, and the second is like the first, to love your neighbor as yourself. The summary of commandments 5 through 10. In fact, when the Apostle Paul speaks of the law in Romans, and chapter 13, uh, he says this. Chapter 13, verse 8, he says, O oh, uh, no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And when the scripture says that we're to love our neighbor as ourself, that is not a commandment to love ourselves. The commandment is to love your neighbor. The assumption is that you have a self-interest. A self-interest in your own preservation and well-being. And so, simply God says that since that's normal in the context of your life, I don't have to command you to love yourself. Don't concentrate on that. If you do that, you'll enter into sin very quickly. Because then you'll put your interests above others. But to love your neighbor as yourself is to say, All right, what is best for my neighbor as if my neighbor was me. What would I want? What would be best? What would I do for myself in that situation? And he says, now turn that, sacrifice, and love them like that. That's what it means. But in the life of a Christian, and what Peter is speaking to here is a brotherly love. That is a love for one another. And when Jesus was with his disciples, you remember on that last night, and turn to this so you'll know I'm not lying, in, in John in chapter 13. When Jesus was with his disciples... Uh, on the night that he was betrayed, he was with them. Do you remember, he washed their feet, an amazing act of humility, Here, the Master, really the Lord of glory, not just their teacher at that moment in time, not just their rabbi at that moment in time, but if we take off the veil, we see that he's the Lord of glory, and he strips down, takes the form of a servant in their eyes, and he humbles himself to wash their feet. And then, That's just a preliminary, because he's about to go to the cross, which frankly makes the humility of foot washing look like, he's going to go to the cross, the Lord of glory to the cross. And in the midst of all that, he says to them in chapter 13, verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, a disciple is a learner, is one who follows after another. In fact, if you look at someone who is a disciple of another, you should see in that disciple his master, the one he's following. If it's a, you know Michael Jordan and you're a basketball player, if, if you're a disciple of his, then you ought to be able to you know, start at the foul line, jump, and dunk it. Right? People go, whew! I've only seen Michael Jordan do that. You're like him. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to, if you're going to be my disciples, and people are going to notice that you're my disciples, they must be able to see in you that which is only really seen well in me. And so what I want them to see in you, what I want them to see in you that's really in me, is how you love each other. That is, you're to love each other as I Have loved you. See, that's the newness of the commandment. The command to love isn't all that new. I mean, it was in the Old Testament to love your neighbor as yourself. What's changed now is Jesus is saying, I want you to love each other like I've loved you, in the same way that I've loved you, like I've loved you, as I've loved you. Not just as you love yourself, but as I have loved you. That's the newness of this commandment. And he said, if you do that, then people go, yes, you've been with Jesus. You're like Jesus. You're a follower of Jesus. Because you love the people that he loves the way that he loves them. And you see, this is is crucial. For instance, if you'll turn uh, over to chapter 15 and verse 12 of John's Gospel. Again, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Now, now, so much hinges on this. Turn back to chapter chapter 14 and verse 15 of John. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now bear in mind what Jesus' commandment is, to love each other. So in a sense he says, if you love me, you'll love each other. If you love me, you'll love each other. Then verse 16 he says, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth in the world I cannot see. And the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. He says, listen, if you love Me, then you'll love each other. You'll obey Me. And you'll be a recipient of My presence. Through the Holy Spirit. Notice verse 21. Jesus says, whoever has My commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves Me. Bear in mind this commandment to love each other. So we can say, whoever loves Whoever among you loves one another is he who loves me. To love each other, as believers, is to show love to Jesus and to show that we love Him. And then, amazingly, the next sentence. And he who loves me, that is, the one who loves each other, because you're the one who obeys His commandments, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love Him and manifest myself to Him. If you want to see Jesus, if you want a revelation of who He is, if you want to really know Him, He says, you really have to love each other. That is, you have to obey Me. Uh, And then I will show Myself to you. You realize in the midst of loving one another, we see Jesus. My head's going a mile a minute now. I'm going to try to sort this out very calmly. Ah, Verse 23, Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and make our home in him. Notice chapter 15 and verse 10. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, bear in mind this commandment to love each other, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, And that your joy may be full. Now, how is it that we live in or abide in the love of Jesus? We do that by obeying Him. What do we do when we're obeying Him? We're loving each other. And so He says, listen, if you're loving each other, then you're abiding in my love. And what will be the result of that? Well, the one result in verse 11 is that you will be filled with joy. There's absolutely no, positively no joy in living selfishly and self-centeredly. There's only joy in giving yourself in the context of the interest of others. That's real joy. People who live self-centered, selfish lives are miserable. They're never happy, never satisfied because nothing can ever fulfill all their needs and desires and wishes. But if you spend your life Meeting and being interested in the interests of others, you'll be happy. That's the word of Jesus. Then notice he says this, if you'll turn back to chapter 15 and verse 4. He said, Abide in me. Now how do we abide in him? We abide in him by obeying him. What's it mean to obey him? It means that we love each other, okay? Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, remember we abide by obeying, obeying by loving others. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. You want to be a fruit bearer. You want to see the fruit of the Spirit born in you? You want to see the gospel go forth? You want to see fruit in the context of the kingdom of God abide in Jesus by obeying him, Love each other. Then, verse 7: If you abide in me, obey, love. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. How do we prove that we're his disciples? How is it that other people are going to know that we're disciples of Jesus? By loving each other. How do we abide in Him? By obeying Him. What's it mean to obey Him? It means to love each other. What happens when we love each other? Well, the Holy Spirit lives in us. The Father lives in us. We prove that we love Him. He loves us. It's one big happy little deal. And we're filled with joy. And we're bearing fruit. And we're praying. And our prayers are being answered. Why? Because we're praying for the needs of each other they saying, oh God, look at my brother, look at my sister, look at this one whom I love, look at their need. Please meet it. And Jesus goes, cool, thank you. I'm glad you noticed. I love them too. And he meets that need, you see. And we see food all over the place. I'll turn to 1 John. John is like many current-day authors. He simply writes one book over and over again. Same thing. Publishes the first book. The second point is really the same thing. And it's the same thing. Uh, Notice, chapter 2, verse 9, 1 John. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother and abides in the light... I'm sorry. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness, and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going, because the darkness has blinded him. Again, same theme, same idea. Um, chapter three, verse ten. But this is evidence. By this, by this, it is evidence who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. It, it, it just, there just simply isn't any way around this as believers in Christ. Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, We also ought to love one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Verse 20, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Do you get that? And So when Peter comes to say very clearly this command that we're to love one another. He's talking in the context of, of loving other Christians because that's to whom he's writing. And this is a brotherly kind of love. Now love is obviously complex. Um, it's not unusual to desire to love and not know how. It's not unusual to say, how is it that, that I should carry out love at this point? Is it a disciplinary love? Is it as a forgiving, overlooking kind of love? What kind of love uh, should, I, should I express here? And there are all kinds of books. Perhaps one of the more famous is C.S. Lewis's book called The Four Loves, where he takes various Greek words and and outlines uh, different aspects, if you will, of love. He begins with a love of affection, as he calls it, or a family kind of love, the love that a parent for a child, child for a parent. There is some sort of natural bond here that, that draws the two together, and you find yourself attached, you find yourself looking out for the best interest of the other, because you have this bond of parentage, for instance, this bond of family. Uh, then he speaks of a, of a of a friendship kind of love, where there's this bond between uh, people because of a mutual interest that they may share, um, and and so 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 they find themselves enjoying each other's company, they find themselves looking out for one another at least as it reflects around this interest because, because they, they're, they're bound together by that. There's an erotic or we can put it more positively I suppose, a romantic kind of, of love that, that looks at another and finds them to be lovely and irresistible and you say, I can't live my life without this person and so you're drawn to them because of their, their beauty or that which attracts you to them and you're drawn to them and you need to possess them if you will and to have them and they need to be yours in that sense, and then he speaks of this love that he simply calls charity, old-fashioned word uh, for those who've been around Christian circles long enough. Uh, you know, it's this word uh, agape uh, that, uh, that that expresses this, this this Christian kind of love that looks out for the best interests of others, not necessarily because of their loveliness, but simply because you're one who loves. And you simply love them, though they may be undeserving of your love, though they may have hurt you in some way. And you wouldn't otherwise be attracted to them necessarily. But but now you find yourself doing for them what is good, this kind of love, the kind of love that, that God has, if you will, for us. Peter calls it a brotherly kind of love. Uh, So there is some family tie, but it's not a natural family tie, it's a spiritual family tie. We didn't start out in natural families together, sort of growing up together. Uh, We grew up separate from one another, different cultures, different backgrounds, in all kinds of ways. And then Peter says, now we have this common parentage, this father who is God. Because God isn't the father of all, he's only the father in this sense of those who believe in Jesus, those who are born of the Spirit, John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13 tell us. And so he says, in this sense, this, this, this brotherly love for each other. But we mustn't, by the little phrase, brotherly love, think this is going to be easy. There's all kinds of books written about the natural family, and we realize that siblings don't naturally get along with each other. And thus, we shouldn't expect that Christian brothers and sisters should naturally get along with each other. Peter would know that better than anyone else, I suppose, because it took a vision from God, a special vision from God, for Peter to realize that he could, as a Jew, love a Gentile and take the Gospel to them. I mean, here's Peter. I mean, he hung out with Jesus, love incarnate. He heard the commandment to go into all the world and make disciples of all people, and he didn't budge because he didn't have a category in his brain yet to say that Gentiles are people too because Jews hated them and Gentiles hated Jews it was a religious squabble especially between the Jews and the Samaritans but then any non-Jew was so far removed from what they understood the covenant to be that they just simply never thought about them and when they did think about them it was only to avoid them to stay out of their way And so Peter had to reorient his whole heart towards these other people to love them. Because his identity, you see, changed when he became a Christian. His identity was no longer his ethnicity. His identity was now that he was a child of God, that God was his father. And any of those for whom Christ had died, and any of those... Who believed in Jesus were now his brothers and sisters, regardless of where they came from, regardless of their educational background, regardless of the economic background, regardless of their, their culture, whatever it was that was no longer their identity, their identity would be that they're believers in Christ. You see, there's, 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 there's another blindness, if you will, to everything other than that as we gather together in Christ. So often, we see how we look externally, how we're dressed, what kinds of cars we drive, where we grew up, what our color is, what our national origin and what our ethnicity is, what our educational background might be. And we begin to categorize and say, well, I can talk to this person, but I can't talk to that person. And of course, all that's nonsense. Because you see, now our whole identity is in Christ. And what that means is this. In order to enter into this family, what I need to do is publicly say this. That the best I can do on my own is to merit the condemnation of God. How cool does that make me seem? You know? It doesn't really matter at that point in time if I have eight PhDs or whether I've not even gotten out of elementary school. It doesn't matter if I have a lot of money or a little it doesn't matter if I'm handsome or not. It doesn't matter if I'm popular or whatever. It doesn't, none of that matters. It's all exactly the same. And so you see, we come with that kind of identity. Peter said, now, now love each other now. Now, now and that takes some of the difficulty away, but it's still difficult because we, we come from different backgrounds. I mean, he was saying to this to people that would have to love someone like the Apostle Paul who had persecuted Christians. I mean, he's he's writing to people that that perhaps had lost someone in their family to the persecution that Saul of Tarsus, who later became known as Paul, had brought upon the church. And in a sense, he's saying, I want you to love Paul. He's now your brother. And you say, but he killed my mother. I know. Love him. this brotherly love. So you see, this agape kind of love loves because you're a lover. That's how God has loved us. A couple of long quotations from men who are alive, so I hate to give you their name, but I will, just so you know, this is me. Michael Green uh, was a professor at Regent College and Seminary in Vancouver, British Columbia writes this. He still may be there, I don't know where he is now. He writes, The crown of Christian advance is love. The greatest of these is love. The word agape is one which Christians to all intents and purposes coined to to denote the attitude which God has shown himself to have to us and requires from us towards himself. In friendship, the partners seek mutual solace. In sexual love, mutual satisfaction. In both cases, these feelings are aroused because of what the loved one is. With agape, it is the reverse. God's agape is evoked not by what we are, but by what He is. It has its origin in the agent, not in the object. It is not that we're lovable, but that He is love. This agape might be defined as a deliberate desire for the highest good of the one loved, which shows itself in sacrificial action for that person's good. This is what God did for us. This is what He wants us to do. D.A. Carson, a great New Testament exegete, professor at Trinity Seminary in Chicago, writes this. If I must say in a few words what is distinctive about God's love for us, it is that it is self-originating. When a young man reveals his heart with a passionate declaration, I love you, at least in part he means that he finds the woman he loves lovely. At least some of his love is elicited by the object of that love. But God loves what is unlovely. If, as John 3.16 tells us, God loves the world, it is not because the world is so lovely God cannot help himself. Judging by God's use of the term world, God loves the world only because of what he is. And uh, derivatively, that is how Christians learn to love. They learn to love with love that is, like God's, self-originating. Of course, unlike God's love, ours is not absolutely self-originating, but it is self-originating in the sense that God's grace so transforms the believer that his or her responses of love emerge out of the matrix of Christian character and are correspondingly less dependent on the loveliness Of the object. Let me quickly just summarize all that. I just did that to give this sentence credibility. (laughs) This love is to come from us, it is not to be dependent upon the actions of the people we're loving. It's not to be dependent upon their loveliness or lovableness at that moment in time. We are to be lovers. The most, I think, astounding parable of Jesus is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And I say that because how Jesus just messed everything up. Turn, uh, Luke, in chapter 10. Given by the clock, this may be a three-week sermon. Luke chapter 10, parable of the Good Samaritan. You know this, but listen. Because because the point is exactly this. Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to him, to Jesus, to to test, saying, Teacher, uh, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you'll live. Verse 29. But desiring to justify himself. Bad motives Always dangerous to ask Jesus a question, you know, because he just kind of knows exactly why you're asking it. You're flunk um, before even the answer. Um, To justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? So, if we have to love our neighbors as ourselves, so what I need then is a list of people to love, right? What I need is a list of neighbors. Tell me my neighbors. All right, I'll get busy. but at least tell me who my neighbors are so I don't have to waste my time on them. All right? So that's the question. But of course, that's not the point. It's not going to be the point. You know the story. Uh, Jesus replied, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road when he saw him, he passed on the other side. So likewise the Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... Now, you, now, when Jesus said a Samaritan, the questioner went, Ugh! Okay? Because he hated the Samaritan. He says, wait a minute, Samaritans aren't even on my radar screen, neighbors are not. So don't even talk about them. All right? So his heart's pounding, he's getting sweaty, he's getting ticked to Jesus, all of that. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and where he saw him, he had compassion, he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, some money, gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and uh, whatever more you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Now, remember the question. The question is, give me the list of the people I should love. So you would think the answer would be, you need to love everybody who's beaten by the side of the road. Okay? Or even, you need to love everybody who really, obviously, needs your help. You know, when you're walking, when you're going through life, and you see somebody needing something, help them. That that would make a great deal of sense here. That's the answer to the question. But Jesus spins it on its ear and simply says this, Which of these three do you think proved a neighbor? No, 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 no. I don't want to be a neighbor. I want to know who my neighbors are, so I can love them and so jesus' point is you 've missed it. Be a lover, be one who loves the love isn 't to be dependent upon them so much it 's to come from you. The Samaritan was different in between from the priest and the Levite in that he was compelled to help because of who he was. On the inside. The others weren't lovers. Be a lover. Ephesians, chapter 5, in verse 1. The Apostle Paul writes this. Therefore, be imitators of God. Rather lofty. Alright? So in what sense are we to be imitators of God? You see, if if you would say then, now go and create the world, that would be difficult. But he doesn't. He says, Therefore, be imitators of God his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice. Same word. Do you realize, I mean, the Bible's all about this. We can't avoid this. We can't live as Christians. We can't live as Christians through life saying, well, I really don't need to be bothered I really don't need to be inconvenienced I really don't need to and we do you see the question is are we lovers classic passage on love 1st Corinthians in chapter 13 I don't know why people like this chapter because it pierces me you want to give me a hallmark card don't give it to me with this on there All alright because this just... I read this and I go... Alright? Because unless we're just living superficial Christian lives and love means, you know, I wave at you when I see you, you know, laying there beaten on the side of the road. Or uh, I ignore you or I just say, Hi, how are you? And go past you or... I, you know, every once in a while I kind of... You know, this is real life, you see. This is in the difficulties and the hardship of life. For instance, verse 4... Love is patient. You know what that means? That means you're in the midst of being tremendously annoyed by somebody. Now, if you're not being annoyed, then you're not being patient. Whatever else you're being. If, if, if nobody's annoying you, you're not having to practice patience. So don't call yourself a patient person if you don't live with annoying people. Alright? That's why we're a church. We can all be patient because we're annoying. That's You know... And patience really means you're aggravated. Right? You're really aggravated. And then love says, I'm not going to retaliate. And you're like a muzzled mutt. Right? Patience. That's hard. The question is, is that in you? It's kind. It's benevolent. Old novels always have a character described. He had a kind face. See, old novels, an old way of describing. What does that mean? It means when you looked at that person, you saw a benevolent person, you saw a generous person, you saw a welcoming person. If you were if you were in need and you looked in the crowd and you saw the one with the kind face, it would mean that would be the person you would be attracted to, thinking I could go to that person. And they won't reject me. I can go to that person, they won't turn me away. I can go to that person and they won't, they won't condemn me, but they'll receive me in some of this kind person. That's what love is, you see. Now, now, a kind face looking to a wonderful person who's not in need is wasted. This is a kind face meaning... You're kind when people come to you with all kinds of issues and your initial response might be to be critical or to condemn them and to turn them away. That would be the natural response to say, oh, but, a, but this kindness in love, like Jesus' kindness in love to us, is not to turn away, but to be benevolent even when nobody else would be benevolent. To be nice when nobody would else nobody else would be nice. That's this kind of love. Love doesn't envy You see, love looks at what another person has and says, I'm so glad you have that. I'm so happy for you. I'm so glad you just got that raise. I'm so glad you live in that big house. I'm so glad your life is going so well. That's so great. In fact, I'll pray it even goes better. And you say that when their life is going way better than yours. You see, if their life isn't going better than yours, and they're doing better, and you say, great, that's really not love, that's just condescension. A battle in the head. But when you're able to say that, honestly, from the heart, sincerely, earnestly, because you care for them, yeah, not envy. And love doesn't boast. You see, envy says, I see what you have, and I want it so that, and I want it, and not so you can't have it, Boasting says, see what I have, so you'll want what I have. It doesn't do that either. Love doesn't rub it in. Love doesn't just think about itself, you see. It wouldn't even think to boast like that. It's not arrogant. That is, it's putting the needs of others ahead. It's not rude. Rudeness comes when people annoy us and we say exactly what we're thinking. No, it doesn't do that. It doesn't insist on its own way. How could it? It's not irritable or resentful. It just isn't touchy and crabby and whiny and complaining. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It itself doesn't want to do wrong to another person. It It isn't pleased when one it loves is doing wrong. It goes to help, correct, in a loving way. Thus, it would never slander, it would never gossip, it would never be malicious, it would never be deceitful, it would never be hypocritical. Love would never be that, because it doesn't like wrongdoing. But rejoices in the truth, everything that's good. It, it bears all things. Whatever it can cover, it covers. Because love covers a multitude of sins. It believes all things. That doesn't mean love is gullible, but the hard intention is to believe and to hope all things, to be hopeful. Yes, change is really coming. Yes, this is really working. Yes, this is really improving. It endures all things because it says love never ends. It never fails. It keeps on loving. That's the very nature of love. The very nature of the love of God for us is that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ, Christ Jesus. Now. I confess to you when I read that, my first reaction is to drive me to my face and say, God, this is is what it means to follow you. This is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to take the name of Christ and love like this. Is there any hope for me? Is there any hope that I can be a neighbor? Is there any hope that this love can come from me? And amazingly, the answer that Peter gives is yes. That's the amazing thing. Now we'll talk about that yes next week. So this week, I want you to do two things. I don't always give you assignments, because I don't like assignments. I don't like sermons that end up in doing, okay? I just don't. I like sermons that end up in being, not doing. Next week we will end up in being. This week ends up in doing. So this week, watch your life. Watch your life. Who is it of one another? They may be in your own family. They may be in your own small group. They may be in your own Sunday school class. They may be in in the nursery when you're working in the nursery. It may be some parent coming back to get the kid. It may be you coming back to get your kid. It may be somebody in the context of doing a meal. It may be helping move the Donahos in. It may be in some shape or form. You know, watch yourself. Look at your reactions to requests and needs of others. And and, and, and what's your response? What's your initial response? What's, What's coming forth from you? Now, if it's the wrong thing, if it's not love, don't stop there and just be defeated and say, I'm not a loving person. Confess that as sin. And trust. You can read ahead if you want. Reread this passage and ask yourself, where's the hope? Go find it. And say, I can, in Christ, I can be a lover. This need not fall on deaf ears. This need not just discourage me. I can really, by faith, through the Spirit of God in me, by Christ being formed in me, love. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I don't know what to say. I'm amazed at how you love us. I think I'm even more amazed that you think we can love like that. That you think I can love like that. And so I pray for me and for us that we would be a transformed people, born again, transformed people by the powerful word of God in such a way that we love. And then it's evident. And people say,